Hi, I'm just doing a quick intro for this. This is the second part of my two-hour chat with Paul Rothwell, producer and uh, production company runner. runner. No, he wasn't a runner. Like, he didn't get the coffee. He ran the production company. Extraordinaire. And uh, so the longer intro is on the other episode. If you're just getting to this one, episode two should be somewhere in the vicinity, whether you're on SoundCloud or on my blog or whatever. And make sure you listen to that one first if you like things in chronological order. Otherwise, enjoy my, my second or my further chat with Paul. Anyway, we could we could pick up on last week's chat. Um, yeah. I think chronologically, um, we, we got to the point where Gorgeous had begun, or I'd asked you to explain how Gorgeous had begun, and you, you told yeah. me in, in uh, good terms. So what, what year do you think we're at chronologically now? Oh, good question. It is 97. 97. It's around about September 97 when we start. And Gorgeous exists. Chris has set it up already a couple of years before. And funnily enough, um, a friend of mine looked after the properties for Carlton, old school friend, and he called me up and he said, I've had this guy phone me up. Um, they want to rent our office space in Soho. It's a company called Gorgeous. Have you ever heard of them, anything about them? This is before I was there. And yeah. I said, oh, yeah, it's a guy called Chris Palmer. And um yeah, he said, what do you think? Well, that would be a good option, you know, worth taking them as a tenant. I said, yeah, I think they will, actually, you know. I think um, I think it'll be a good company. And um, having no idea that a year later I'd be joining them. But there we are. So um, and I think we touched on a little bit last week about the, uh, the, the kind of twin roles of somewhat running the company, uh, you know, being the responsible grown-up there who, who can look after things in a way that might not be done quite so well by, by Chris, although I assume someone was running all that for Gorgeous before you and Frank. Absolutely. So Tim Marshall um, oh, Tim, was yeah. running it, and Tim was Chris's producer, mm-hmm. and um, and he was no doubt running it very well. But Chris persuaded Frank and I to join him, as I think I mentioned, and then that was technically became a new company, although to all and to purposes it's the same company. It's, it's Gorgeous that Chris set up. Right. And so you're Frank's producer again now yep that's happening right that's right yeah so i'm mostly producing frank tim's producing for chris and um for a few years that's there were, there were a couple of new directors but that was more or less how it was and then peter thwaites joined us a few years later and t- when did tom join tom, tom joined a couple of years after that i think so i'd Yes, Tom was about ninety. Tom was about two thousand, because right. I think we did Guinness Snails in ninety nine. Yeah. To two thousand, and then probably a year after that, around two thousand, two thousand and one. And was there a, a deliberate thing of keeping it small, and unless the right director came along, or were you looking to grow it as a company at all? But both, I think we we were we were keen to take somebody on if the right person came along. But we weren't looking to grow it just for the sake of growing it. Absolutely not. The, the only thing we cared about is trying to keep it of a very high quality. And um, so we were, we, 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 we rarely asked somebody to join. And um, that, that continued, actually. We never really changed from that. Right. Um, so around this time, you've got ads like Audi number one and um, the Central Bahia Museum ad, I think, going on, UFO and Grim Reaper, yeah. maybe? Yeah, these are all, um, those are all ads Frank did at Wayland's. Oh, okay. Pre, that's pre-97, I think. They're probably sort of 95 to 97. 
Okay, so what were the first kind of gorgeous ads that you, you remember doing as part of that company with Frank? The very first one Frank did was a Volvo ad, but it wasn't a particularly memorable Volvo ad. It's a decent one, but it wasn't. A, it was about a speed, land speed record attempt. Um, that rings a bell, yeah. Was that with AMV? Yes, yeah, it was with AMV. Frank Liebman was the producer. Um, and then were you going into, I mean, I don't know, it was, was, when was Double Life at this kind of... Double Life was quite shortly after that. I'm going to have a little pause. And I'm, while I'm pausing, um, I'm just going to pull up. I'm cheating. I'm looking at the Frank Budging page on the DNAD website. So I can, I'm just going through <laughs> the ones that got in the book. And going, oh, yes, he did Chris to John. And then there was the uh, the box for Lego, and uh, this was all around this time. Yeah, so here we go. Um, I said Volvo, didn't I? Oh, yeah, that was November 97. Um, oh, these aren't in order, okay. Yeah, Sony was... There was, there was Sony Stamina Cam was oh, yeah. shortly after that. I think it was, oh, there's two Sonys here. That's confusing. Yeah, Sony Stamina Cam, The Unexpected. Um, do you remember that? It was a, oh, yeah, yeah, where everything falls off and it's all a big... Yeah. If only there was more battery Guys. in the camcorder. That's right. Um, so we did that in sort of March 98. Um, when was Double Life? Yeah, okay, so that was August 98. What were we doing? I think we were filming. I think we were filming. We just finished filming something. And and I said to Frank, we were just getting into the van on a scout into um, to go to a scout. And I said, oh, a script's come in. And he went, oh, please. He said, I really don't want to see any more. I just want to break. I just want to break after this. And I said, no, fair enough. I said, but, you know, it's, um, have a read anyway. It's uh, um, Ed Morris. You you know, it's worth a look. So he, he, he read it. He just went quiet. And then he started going, fuck, fuck, <laughs> fuck, fuck. And I, and I looked at him and he still said nothing. And I went, fuck good, fuck bad. And he went, fuck. He said, oh, he said, I really want to do this. Fuck, I don't want to do anything. <laughs> <laughs> so, so that was his reaction to Double Life, which was very funny at the time. Um, it's great when a director gets a wonderful script, which he really wants to do, but he really doesn't want to do anything. Anyway, so we, we, we did end up doing Double Life, and it did rather well. Yeah, that's interesting that you said you, you got it in and you passed it on. Were, were you a sort of gatekeeper for the things that came through? Because presumably he wouldn't want to read every single thing that came off the fax machine or the, the email. No. I mean, yes, there probably were somewhere. You, you just knew. But if there's if there's half an idea there, I didn't want to be the person who threw away a good idea. Frank or Chris or any of the directors are a far better judge of what, they see as an idea and what they can make of it than, than I am. I might have an inkling, but I'd rather, you know, let them let them see that. But presumably, there but, are... yes. But there were times, and of course, you just think there's no point. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, but, so, but, you, but you certainly would never say that um, oh, no. to the agency. You, you always wanted to see it first, of course, whatever. Was that I when you say... Um, only polite to. Was that when you say Frank's working on a film script or he's tied up for some other very nice excuse, but wink, wink. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it was never hard to say no for Frank. You know, I don't think anyone felt too spurned from the director who shot three jobs a year or, or, or for Chris for that matter. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that makes sense. And um, so obviously <laughs> he, he entirely spotted what was going to be good in Double Life. And obviously that was a huge contribution from, from him. But I kind of think that uh, it, it's interesting going like, is it also the client, the creative, and maybe the, the agency? And there's a good track record kind of in all of those things to some degree where you go, if I take this on, it's not going to be ruined in the process by a client who goes, I know we sold you that script, but I now want to ruin it in some way. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, it, it's so important that the, the client, it's very rare you have a relationship with the clients enough to know this could be good because they're involved. Funnily enough, with Double Life, it was the first time we worked with this client, um, David Patton. And by client mm. here, I'm talking about the, the marketing company, Sony. Um, but of course, it, from our point of view, it was Trevor Beatty and Ed Morris um, and James Sinclair. And we knew Trevor well and Ed well, and you knew it was, it was going to be safeguarded in their hands. What we didn't know at the time was how good a client David Patton would be. And he, we went on to do quite a few things with him over the years, um, probably culminating in um, PlayStation Mountain, which, which took a client with huge um, conviction, but also belief in us. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was probably the start of, of a very good relationship with him. And I was wondering if you could talk about your role as a producer on something like Double Life, because, um, you know, it, it, is it a demanding thing to source the people or the locations or the, you know, how are you, how are you getting involved in terms of, maybe, maybe it's just working with Frank and the way he works and is he demanding and suddenly changes his mind at the last minute and you need to have these things and those things. How, how do you approach that? I think, I think with Frank, he liked to keep it as fluid as he could um, for as long as he could. Now, of course, at every stage, you've got a client and an agency who want certain decisions in order to get them approved and ticked off. And, and Frank, who understood that, but always wanted to keep something open. And, and the only reason he wanted to keep it open was so that he could find a better way to realize it. So there was, there was always that tension between the two. Um, I remember with Double Life particularly, Frank wanted a lot of flexibility in the way he shot it. And so one location we had, I think we were there for two days, was an old sort of semi, not ruined, but um, a fairly rundown big old house, which had been used for quite a few film shoots over the years. Because you could sort of do whatever you want. You could create your own set in one of the rooms or you could find something interesting in one room and then the next. And we would sort of set up there. And the first hour of each day there, as I remember, was almost plotting out what we were going to do. And that wasn't through lack of wanting to plan. It was often Frank would go away in the evening and come back in the morning with pages of new thoughts and storyboards. So you'd you'd sort of sit together and try to work out what you could make happen. And then um, you try and sell that in with, with the agency who are there and involve them in it once, <laughs> once you understood yourself. 
Yeah, so so all those are sort of vignettes, and um, I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't it wasn't always like that. Some some jobs were very tightly storyboarded, but he, Frank still always wanted as much flexibility as he could. Chris, on the other hand, liked to storyboard very tightly and, and liked to know exactly what um, he was shooting and and wanted everyone around to know what they were shooting. And sometimes, indeed, he would drop the scene into an animatic he'd made as he went along, which of course clients and agencies loved because they they saw exactly what was happening. So that was a very different experience. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just for example, so you've got people, sort of, there's a guy in a bath, there's a guy in a wheelchair in a tube station, I think, there's some people in a bedroom, then there's the Unconquered Worlds kid, and then the, the gangsters. I mean, was, was much of it, say, in the script beforehand, or was it all a collaboration, or was it Frank going, away going oh, a guy in a bath, that's what we need for this one? It, it, it was a collaboration, um, very, very much. And, and again, Frank and Ed had a particularly strong relationship. And Trevor Beatty had full faith in Frank and was happy to give him a lot of rain. Um, as I remember, there, w- there was about twice as much dialogue right. in the script as in the final film. And the first time that really was discussed, I think Frank said he thought the dialogue was a bit heavy, but it was all shot. But when we presented the first edit, which they absolutely loved, Frank said afterwards, have you noticed anything? It's got only half the dialogue in it. <laughs> and Ed said, it's fine. It works. It's brilliant. doesn't matter. And um, one thing we did on that film, which may not be obvious when you look at it, and I'll, and I'll try and remember this in my mind to get it clear, which again was a technical challenge, which made it really interesting for me, was Frank wanted to take the edge off, give it a slightly otherworldly feel, so he said, can I shoot at um, like 18 frames so that, was it 18 or was it the other way around? No, he wanted to shoot it in ever slightly slow-mo so that it just looked, something looked slightly strange about it. The problem was you couldn't shoot sick and sound at that. Oh, right. he, as ever, Frank questioned it and go, why, why? <laughs> so we started doing tests. So what we did, I think, is the actors would talk very slightly slowly as they acted mm-hmm. and act ever so slightly slowly. And then it was sped up and then it sounded normal. No, it's the other way around, wasn't it? Yeah, so I'd have to I'd, I'd have to think about it and check it. It's so long since I thought like this. I think, no, that's right. The actors had to speak slightly quick mm-hmm. um, because then we were going to slow it down. That's right. So... We'd shoot sync sound. The actors would be speaking very slightly quicker than they normally would. Then we would, in post, we would slow it down and we'd pitch change their voice. And we did all these tests and it, it did work. And um, that was great. So everyone had told us we couldn't do sync sound and have it slightly slowed down, but we managed to do it. So that gave us a very strange sensation to the film, um, which coupled with the music was one of the reasons maybe it's so powerful. Mm. There was this... At the time, Chris Palmer was shooting um, BBC Future Generations. It was a film for for BBC where this little boy of about five years old travelled through the world of BBC Kids TV over the last 30 years, and it was a beautiful film. But when he was casting for it, there was another kid who was very good, but we couldn't use both. And Frank was looking for a kid to do the line Unconquered Worlds. And there was this little boy, Connor, and Chris had said, there was this great kid I saw, you should see him. 
So we did. And Frank said, I love him. He's great. And the, do you remember the scene where he's looking to camera and he's got to see these sort of wide eyes and he goes and conquered worlds and people always, they still from that was, um, became the sort of face of the commercial. Yeah. Oh yeah. That, that's the, re- the scene everyone remembers and everyone says, oh yeah, that's yeah. the one that sticks out. Yeah. And to me, there were always two reasons that happened. One was because Frank was using a ring light. If you know ring light, it's, it's, it's a circular light which you put around the lens. He had a slightly long lens right in the face of this kid with a ring light. So the ring light gives a kind of even light on the face, but slightly dazzled the kid. So his eyes are quite wide. And also he's concentrating really hard because he's having to speak a little bit faster than he would normally speak <laughs> because we're going to slow it down. And we're trying to explain to him about this. So there was a slightly mesmerized look about him, which worked brilliantly. Um, it's interesting how sometimes things come about. Yeah, because I wouldn't have thought necessarily, you'd go, oh, this is going to be the one. The, the little kid going and conquered worlds, that's the kind of central moment where it all, everything, you know, it could have been any of those moments in, in one way or another yeah. if they just had a similar sort of magic. But it was, yeah, that's the one. And most of them said most of the lines because we just didn't know which, you know, right. Frank wasn't sure which bits would work best. Um, and so I remember again with the kid, there was this lovely moment where the first AD is standing just off camera and he's sort of feeding in the lines and then the kid's repeating them and the first goes something like every day I catch the bus I go to work little pause join the hoi polloi was it something like that and he's doing this and he and when it's a little pause he does this little thing with his hands and the first AD afterwards said um Connor I think that was his name Connor what's that thing you're doing with your hands and he said you said little paws. These are little paws. <laughs> <laughs> and I, always, I always remember that, which is a lovely moment. Yeah. And then there was an actor, Addy. I'm trying to think of his surname. He's become quite well known as a TV personality. But he's the guy with dreadlocks in a wheelchair. And so he's both black and disabled. And at the time, you would expect both of those to be a real fight in the casting. And again, as an example of how great agency client not one person ever at any stage said anything about that it was just completely accepted yep he's good he's good love him love him and um he ended up actually on screen delivering the line of life and limb so and and when i saw the cut i thought oh we're gonna get away with that because you know he's he's in a wheelchair and we're talking about limbs but um it it never seemed to be an issue and in fact it was a I always felt that I was was a step forward for including people with with um, all sorts of different abilities on screen, and and that was a step forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those ones that when when people look back and talk about the ads of, of, of around that time or even you know even longer, it always gets included as a as a classic, and it's kind of interesting to see which ones. Because there are some that were loved at the time, but people don't remember as much now. But Double Life is yeah, certainly yeah. remembered. Um, and Addy was Addy was a basket, wheelchair basketball player who went on to be in the GB team and then became, he's often a commentator on the Olympics and the oh. um, um, Special Olympics and so on. And I bumped into him at a demonstration match at the Copper Box once and we, about 20 years on, had a nice chat. That was only last year. So that was nice. Um, I guess an, another one to talk about, um, particularly from your producing point of view, because I, 
I have heard many tales of it being a, a tricky job was bet on black the snails act. yeah because didn't it have a completely different script but the sets got blown away by a hurricane or something it, it was something like that the script as as the original script Tom and Walt did was a snail race and it was I think it was the atmosphere was, I think it was an Irish film a day at the races or something. And it was this, this sort of sense of a whole village community getting together for, for a race day, but it was to be a snail race. So the first question was where could a snail race take place, which could be believable. And, um, we sort of, it could be anywhere in the world, really. And somehow Cuba felt believable. Plus there were these amazing faces of the people there because all the Guinness ads had such great casts and characters and um, we felt that Cuba could work for that so we went there and the plan was to we were we were we found this illegal cockfighting ring about three quarters of an hour outside Havana and we then built this track which was to be the snails racing track out of cement through some woods over roots under tree trunks all this sort of stuff sections of concrete track and we started filming on the first day and the weather got worse and worse and there was a hurricane warning and in cuba the, the state own everything they control everything mm. so they were loaning us film equipment people um and they closed it down and they said you're not allowed to film for several days so in, in the interim we started looking around um, Havana, where we, we were staying in a hotel. And um, we found this um, almost derelict, which in fairness, most buildings seemed almost derelict, um, multi-story car park, which was actually used as a garage. And in Havana, Cuba, they have no car spare parts and most of the cars are sort of american cars from the 50s pre-castro yeah. but they keep them going so even a broken up old bumper is a priceless item because they'll reuse that so they had a few of those items stashed around the garage and frank thought it would work he could make it work really well in this garage and then at least we could start filming and we had a location because we we, we were never going to be able to film in the other location now we had to abandon that altogether and that's how that location actually came about. We, we spent a day wandering around Havana with Tom and Walt and Yvonne Chalkley and um, found this location. And the Guinness client, who was obviously an excellent client, agreed it very quickly. And so we just started picking up shots. And there's a, there's a haunting lady at the front. Yeah. Um, and she's um, a lady of the night. And she'd invited us into her into her little room to show it to us and frank just filmed it just had a little handheld camera with him as we were wrecking and we picked up shots like that and there were these big waves lashing the seafront and setting up huge 20-foot spray again we picked that up on the pickup day that was just trying to make the most out of a very bad situation but it but it all came together and um tom and walt were running off finding this amazing music and coming back and saying listen to this one listen to this one and they they found that track from an album they bought in a local record shop out there which was wow. nice yeah it's amazing um i heard a story and it may not be true but when you were looking for the locations there was apparently some some sort of shambly hut you were in with frank where scorpions were falling from the roof but frank hadn't noticed and you decided not to tell him was that <laughs> no it well it, there's there's part truth in that in that there were scorpions and um 
the the roof of this cockfighting ring, which did exist, by the way, it was a sort of it was a round hut with um, palm fronds making up the thatch for the roof. The cameraman, the day before we started filming, the cameraman Peter Bijou um, asked if we could thin the roof because he wanted a bit of light to filter through it. It was too thick, so our department started thinning the roof. Quite a few people were around by this stage and noticed that scorpions started falling out of the roof, um, which obviously freaked most people out. Um, Somehow, one must have fallen into Frank's bag because because when we got back to the hotel, we were staying at the Hotel National, this sort of large historic hotel in Havana, and he had been given the presidential suite up stop up top and um he he came to my room one evening quite early on in the shoot a a little bit agitated because he found a scorpion i think he'd found a scorpion in his bag quite a big one so then of course the concern was is there another one so i remember going to his room and we got his bag and we emptied it out into the bath because we figured that was a safe place and sort of (laughs) gingerly went through all his director's notes and um, bits of equipment to, to check that there was no other scorpion but um so so that was the probably the story and i remember there was also a moment on the minibus when suddenly we realized that if it had fallen into frank's bag it could have fallen into anyone else's bag yeah. we were traveling back to location and suddenly everyone jumped up onto the seats and <laughs> <laughs> was a bit nervous so it was very funny yeah it's great um so uh, again, somewhat chronologically, I, I guess Heroes Return is is around this time as well. Um, yes, Heroes Return. I think of a, a little bit later. So, oh, so Double Life, um, not Double Life. Guinness Snails is about two thousand. Heroes Return, maybe a year or two later. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm assuming when when a stellar script comes in, particularly obviously from Vince and Paul. You know, it all feels like everything's in place for it to be really good. Were there were there other scripts that came in for Stella that got turned down and never got made, or anything like that, or, or did you only ever get you know the ones that were ready to go, and then if if it was liked, then all systems were were going. I think we might have pitched on a few. Um, there was there was certainly none that ever came in that I can think of where we went, no thanks. Um, you know, if, if by the time you get to Guinness or Stella, if. Yeah. Even the top directors are only going to get offered one or two of those, and it's what everyone dreams of. So you you do all you can to get it when it comes in. Right. And um, was there anything odd or interesting about Heroes of Eternity? It looks fairly simple, but I guess you're recreating sort of battles of, I don't know which war that's supposed to be. Um, I think it was First World War. Yeah. Um, Yeah, no, in itself not. I suppose the usual problem was trying to find... Again, this was a campaign where there's nothing like, um, in the case of Guinness, we had to follow on from surfers. Yeah. And there's nothing like making you appreciate just how good an ad really is when you have to do the sequel. And it was the same with the Stellars. I mean, obviously, everybody loves Stella and we were no exception, but it's even they're even better once you have to try and live up to it. Sure, sure. And also at this point, is Gorgeous the production company of the year kind of thing? Is, is that happened now? Yeah, um, we first won production company of the year at the ITV award. Um, it was called the ITV award, wasn't yeah. it? At the BTAA, British Television, yeah. BTAA. Was, we won it three or four times, I think. It was around about ninety-eight, 
99 the first time. I think the year of Double Life was the first time we won, or the year after Double Life. Um, we've probably won it then. And and as the person, you know, notionally somewhat in charge of it, were there's three of you, or however, however you're kind of looking at there, was that a very satisfying thing to happen? Because I remember Trevor Beattie saying agency of the year is the only one that mattered to him for, for whatever reason. So it, it it was nice. I mean, I think we all we were all award driven in that we saw it as an endorsement of doing good work. But for me, the awards were satisfying on the night you won the award and the next morning it was, right, what are we going to do this year? So it, it didn't last for long, um, but, but it, it was very enjoyable at the time. I, I felt I became a professional award collector as well because <laughs> Frank and Chris never had much interest in, in going to the ceremonies. Um, and I, I sort of, I think I made a career of being Frank or going up on stage. As, as the company went on, I tried to get um, more and more people in the company going up on stage whenever possible, um, which which was nice. So could be PA, could be receptionist. Um, that was quite regular. And for anyone, and who... I was I was the most miserable. So you know, when you, if you if you're a <laughs> if you're organising an award ceremony, I always used to say what you want when somebody goes to collect it is yee-haw. You want somebody who's yeah. punched in the air like you know this is the most important moment of my life. And whereas I was the most tight-lipped, miserable side who went up. And because I never wanted to make much, because it wasn't about me. To me, it was about the director, the company, the bit of work, the agency, the creatives. I was just the person going to get it. So I I always kept my reaction um, fairly um, minimal. The, the only time I really gave a great reaction was it was at DNAD one year. And Ring and Ledwidge won a – Ring and did a Levi's ad – which won a pencil. And I'd been sitting next to Ringham in the audience chatting to him. And for some reason it said, and the director Ringham Ledridge, producer Paul Rothwell. And we looked at each other and we just burst out laughing because obviously they'd made a mistake. Yeah. Somebody had to go up. And so, we, and, and it, for some reason it was read out and to collect it on behalf of Language is Paul Rothwell. So I, so I went up and collected it and did a thing about, going it's all this is all down to me you know I was pointing at myself <laughs> because I just I just thought that was really funny yeah um and for anyone <laughs> but who... I, I only did that because I had absolutely nothing of course to do with it at all I didn't even work in that company um well I I, I remember having seen and I don't um, I don't know how many people listen to this ever went to the second office gorgeous had but you had a sort of fireplace that had so many yellow pencils in it that it was just I guess you'd come in the next day after DNAD and just stack them up you know here's another six or seven of them yeah there was um I mean there was a slight cheat I suppose in that you know Chris and Frank had won quite a few before Gorgeous as had Tom as had Vince but they all bought them and I was always keen that they were stacked together and whenever we had to do an interview which was you know for example somebody an agency creative would be having a leaving do and they would do little video um, interviews with lots of people around the business who would say a few words about that person. And um, I loved always sitting in front of, if it was me or, or you know, one of our um, directors, we'd always try and sit in front of <laughs> those 50 pencils because I knew every creative in the business who watched that film, they might not hear what we had to say, but they'd clock those pencils. So, um, the, the public, the, the, the marketing never stopped. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, 
Well, let's go through a couple more rounds. If there's anything I miss or anything that you wanted to particularly talk about, because I, I, I think it would be tricky to keep this under four or five hours and still be able to go through all of them. So um, if, I, if I say skip sofa and go to twist, but there's something good about sofa, please let me know and, and we can talk about it. But um, I guess because twist was a black pencil for Frank. Um, yeah. Was there was there some feeling that that he had reached a, a sort of peak there, or I don't know? Was yeah, there... there was, and, and funny enough, I, I was on the TNAD um, pencil jury that year, and um, who was it? And, and debate raged a bit, but but I I'm, I can't remember actually who said it, but somebody swayed the whole jury. They at one point they said, you know. We've got one director who's up for three of the, as a pencil for three of the four bits of work here. He said there comes a time when you have to say, can a director get any better? This is a guy at the absolute top of his game. He said to me the question isn't, do we give a black pencil for direction to Frank Budgeon? He said the only question we could all be asking is which ad do we give it for? And he said if you look at the scripts, because there were three ads that year where he was winning pencils. And he said, if you look at the script, he said to, to me, he said, the Levi's twist is the, the most ordinary script of the three. You know, you've got these people, they get in a car, they go for a drive, they get out, they, cause they're wearing their expensive jeans. They can twist their body into a funny shape. He said, it's not on the face of it, that amazing an idea. So, um, he said, but he said, if you wrote that script and then you showed that film at the end, you'd gone, Blimey, thanks, mate. Um, so, so in a in a sort of distillation of all the discussion that who, which which I should get a pencil for direction, um, black pencil. That was sort of what happened. Yeah, going back to that conversation we had before about people rubbing themselves in Levi's jeans. What was was the script um, closer to the finished article in terms of people stop at a gas station and it's late at night and stuff, or was that something Frank <laughs> helped to bring in? The, the night Frank brought in, and actually it became a, a bit of a disagreement, um, the, the creative team, Tony McTeer and, oh, it's awful, and I can't remember, both creatives, we're, we're always as one with Frank, God and well, but the, somewhere in the, in, in the background there was a Mark concern. That there was, oh, yeah, that's right, Tony and Mark were the creatives. But somewhere there was a concern that, we shouldn't shoot at night because they had done that before. Um, Frank's concern was he he thought it was important that they be seen to go on a long journey or of at least a few hours because they have to be stiff when they get out of the car to want to stretch and turn themselves. To him, it just had no logic otherwise in, in as much as there was any logic to it. Also, they insisted that we... So he wanted to place this petrol station out in the countryside out on the motorway um but they were adamant it had to be in town again for other reasons to do with research it got very tricky and got to the point where the only way frank could resolve it in his mind was if we shot at night and he said to me i know we've budgeted for six days of daylight and it's going to crucify the budget if we switch it to night. But can we switch to night? And, and I, I, I saw why it was so important. So we, we did. And we switched to night, which the agency agreed. And the reason he wanted to switch it to night 
was you wouldn't then know that the petrol station was in the middle of the city and he could make it look like it was in the middle of nowhere, which was really important to him. Okay. And, and he couldn't get that night through otherwise. So um, that's actually how it came about, mm-hmm. that it was at night. Yeah. Um, and w- was there a, a, an extra degree of satisfaction in winning a, a black pencil for that? Or was it, again, just another little block of wood that happened to just go in the pile? No, I mean, I, I, you know, Frank Frank would have been thrilled to bits. He, he wasn't actually there to collect it because he was he was in L.A. And I thought he probably had got a black pencil, having been on the jury, but couldn't know for sure. None of us did. And I'd, I'd tried to find out from DNAD because if he knew he, if he knew he'd won a black pencil, he would have come back to pick it up. But he wasn't going to come back if he hadn't won one. Yeah. And in the end, he said, "I'd rather not come back and win one than come back and not win one." So he he didn't actually collect it himself. So his professional award collector collected it for him. And <laughs> <laughs> <I think laughs> funnily enough, it was Stephen Fry who presented the award um, at DNAD because he often hosted DNAD. Yes. And I think I told you earlier about the story with Frank wanting to direct and start out with Fry and Laurie. Yeah. And so we, we had a little yeah. chat about that when I went up, which was nice. Oh, that's cool. I mean, I, I think from from my point of view, just as a creative in, in advertising, who was, you know, I, I wasn't ever one of Frank's three and a half jobs a year. But Frank not being there to pick up his black pencil or just not really being around gave us sort of, mystique to him i think because it seemed like what would you have to do what would you have to write to get him to do it he was this sort of mysterious person he wasn't like on the pages of campaign all the time there weren't all these giant profiles or interviews with him he seemed to be a sort of uh you know i think positively mysterious person to any of us who weren't working with him generally was that something that he kind of i don't know he, he d- didn't want to be out there and wanted to make it all about the work instead and you know, was it, I just can't tell if it was deliberate or it's just my impression as a creative at that time. I, I, I think so. It was always about the work to him. He wasn't a, he wasn't a self-publicist at all. Um, and, and some of the actions which flowed from that probably helped create a mystique, but I don't think that was intentional. Oh. He, was quite a, he was quite a shy, private person, actually. Um, okay, well, going from a black pencil to a Cannes Grand Prix, I guess tag is around this time as well. Um, and again, I, I would imagine that script coming in must have seemed like a, either if Frank had been busy, he'd have gone fuck a few times because it seems like such a great thing to have, um, to shoot. Maybe he wasn't busy and it was always, oh great, we can fit Tag in. So was, did, did it feel like Tag was going to be one of those classic ads? Yeah, Tag, Tag was a very good script. Um, just trying to remember when that was. The, the, the irony about Tag is the guy wearing... The um, what is it? The tag is the the guy. I said the guy wearing the Nike shoes can't catch anybody, yeah. and Frank always thought that was an ironic paradox, and he was amazed uh, <laughs> Nike Nike would go for it. But he he felt that for years afterwards, he still was amazed they did, but was glad they did. Yeah, that is odd. Now you mention it, <laughs> <laughs> but at the same time, it, it, was it part? Did it come with Shade Runner as well? And yeah, it, yeah. It there were four it. scripts actually. Right. There was Tag Shade Runner. And I honestly can't remember what the other two were. There's tailgating, which Tom did, I think. 
tailgating. Yes, that's right. And then Tom ended up doing it because there was there was some weather issues, and then there was some script changes, and then there was an availability issue because they had to be on air very quickly, and Frank had to be editing, and there wasn't time for him to shoot one of them. Of course, as a company, you you try and um, manipulate that situation slightly to deliver a Nike script to a young director, and that worked quite nicely. Yeah, that was great. So um, was, that must have been quite a logistical, from your producer point of view, quite a logistical nightmare to create tag, I imagine. There's a whole city and you've got to semi-shut it down so people can pretend to hide behind phone boxes and whatever. Yeah, it was shot in Toronto. And, and by the way, I, I, I agree, it must have been a nightmare and I wish I could take any credit that I wasn't the producer. It was Alicia oh, Richards. Okay. And, and um, Alicia's probably done more with Frank over the years than anyone except me we probably did about the same with frank um she was at Wayland's, and um, frank loved working with her and uh, brilliant brilliant producer great and um i guess then moving on you you have something shade, like... shade runner in some ways was harder because yeah it, it needed sun and um Frank was, I think, the cameraman on Shade Runner as well. Oh, no, it wasn't. It was Ben Saracen, sorry. Ben, who, of course, then came on to direct with Gorgeous some years later, um, just as Peter Thwaites had started working with us and then came on to direct. Um, but Shade Runner was a very difficult one, I think, because it was so reliant on, on weather. You could create shade in some shots, but there was a point where you just had to have some sunshine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I guess at this point, Frank is probably the most sought-after director in probably the world, I guess, um, around this time. And if there is a good yeah. script somewhere in the world, you know, whether Danny and Jonathan are also going to get it, Frank's going to see pretty much everything really good, isn't he? Well, Jonathan, um, very obligingly, would take years out of shooting <laughs> commercials. Um, <laughs> so, so, make so, Sex so Beast nice. with Birth or whatever it was, yeah. But was there any kind of like, um, did you ever get the sense that a great script was sent to say Jonathan and Frank or Jonathan and Frank and Danny or, or not? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, that, that, that would happen. I mean, it be, because sometimes a team would only want to talk to one director. Yeah. Often they probably would, but more often the client or the agency would want it to be bid by several. So you weren't always sure if you were the, on a script like that, if you were the genuine bid if you know what I mean yeah um but yeah it wasn't often that they weren't talking to anyone else generally that they, they would those scripts were when there was no money anyway so it, it didn't really matter in terms of trying to get as good a value as you could on the budget right. when they were under budgeted to start with it was um more likely that it was you who they wanted and I, I guess it sort of cuts both ways that if, if Frank's doing three and a half ads a year and there are more than three and a half good ads happening each year were there were there ones that um came in and he declined and then kind of regretted it because someone else did an amazing job or, or did he just go that's the way the cookie crumbles there, there probably were slight regrets but but mostly i think the ones he really really wanted to do he would he would probably pitch on it wasn't often that he he just couldn't and and the, you know the best the, the script you've waited your whole career for came in but i don't remember that happening although i'm sure he would have and i'm sure every director's probably got a, a similar story of the one that got away probably, yeah probably um i guess the, the the outlier around this time is uh for me coco de Mer, because I, I think you know frank's doing big budget 
huge shoots for massive clients all over the world and you know it's almost like they're they are the prestigious great big ads of, of the, the time and then Coco de Mer uh, just is a completely different project to that and if I had been I'm, I'm good friends with Hugh Todd and if I had been Hugh I don't think I'd have even thought of sending it to Frank particularly uh, either for photography or for for, for film so um, yeah. do you have any insight into what happened there or is it just this is an incredibly different unusual project let's let's do it well, Frank was always very um, involved in his photography, and and he actually had an exhibition, a photography exhibition at, at the Tate um, Tate Gallery in Liverpool, which the curator there knew of Frank's stuff, and and Frank tended to take a lot of stills around set, both on scouting but also on the shoot itself it was partly his, his way of seeing but also sometimes he was recording and um so he had this exhibition which he called off camera which was which was a, a great title um and in frank's mind his concern was i think they'd had an exhibition by sebastian salgado there were one immediately before frank and frank said i feel like a complete imposter you know, how, can, <laughs> how can i compare to that i'm not i'm not a photographer in the sense of these people but you know he still had a a unique way of seeing things and and I, I always thought calling it off camera was very clever because it it in frank's mind it slightly diffused this situation he didn't feel like he was being an imposter although there was no reason he should feel like that but i know he was very self-conscious of that yeah um if i i uh, sorry go on no, I've gone. I haven't answered the question you you asked. I've gone off at a tangent and answered my own question. But, yeah, that's, that's all good. Um, well, <laughs> the the the, um, the 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 process, I guess, for Coco de Mer uh, was quite. I, I guess uh, not. Um, the word I'm thinking of is uh, the word keeps popping into my head is fragile, but not fragile. But you've got to be very careful in that situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what, what even went on? If you can, if you can explain any of it, how how did that? get to become okay well we'll do it this way and it'll work because it did work but um unusual it did it was um it was it was it was an in, again it was a fascinating one that probably the hardest thing from from my point of view was how do you cast it um how, how do you get those people who are going to be so uninhibited and then how do you capture it and um which which wasn't a problem for me that was you know for, for frank and and the rapport and I think I'm trying to remember I think it was done by a mixture of techniques so sometimes they would be left on their own and just to, you know to masturbate on their own and they would have a shut release other times Frank would be in there it depended on the person whatever was going to get the best result we had a we had one girl who was a a professional um she was a prostitute i guess and that we had as a or a porn actress that's right she was a porn actress um because she was obviously not going to be intimidated by the situation and that was i don't think the results with her were as good but but it was certainly amusing at the time i remember her <laughs> running around set naked waving a dildo around in hugh's face and <laughs> it was one of the funniest shoots ever as you can imagine a, it was stills which was great because it was tiny it was all shot in 
um, the client's house. Trying to think of her name. Anita Ruddick's daughter. Yeah, it's Anita's daughter, and I can't think of her name. And but she had done up this lovely house just actually the, on the side of Hampstead Heath, and all the there were lots of funny details like the cornicing instead of being your usual shaped cornicing it was a sort of molds of vaginas made up the cornicing and if you look really closely you'd notice this so there were lots of funny little things it was quite a free house so it was a wonderful location to shoot this on but um i remember you'd be sitting sitting waiting while one of the subjects would be in there with a shutter release and as it got later and later and it was getting dark outside, you'd wait and the, suddenly you'd hear this click, 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 click and flashes would start going off. And it was very hard not to, you know, not to make jokes because it was obvious from that what was going on. But anyway, it was a, it was a different experience and um, it, it worked well. Yeah, sure. Um, and, and around the same time, but very, very different was NSPCC cartoon. Um, so... How is the yeah. mixture of animation and live action working on that one? Now, I'm trying to remember. There was something Frank was trying to do which was fundamentally different. We'd worked with Passion a few times with the animators, and, and they were wonderful. We always had a great rapport with them, the, the two companies anyway. Um, there was a great respect between the two companies. Quite often when... I got the impression that quite often when you're combining live action and animation, the an that the live action is dictated by the constraints of the animation. And Frank absolutely saw it as the other way around. It was the live action. The animated character wasn't an animated character. It was a character. It was no different. And he shot it entirely for live action and the animation had to work within that, which I think was quite challenging for them. Yeah. I, I mean, what about the sort of character design and stuff as well? Was that very much a, a collaboration where you're going, this is who this kid is and we need him to have this sort of feel about him? Yeah. Yeah. I imagine so. And, and, and partly that comes out of, the location you cast, what the place is like, what the dad's like, and so yeah. on. Um, but but that's just information you're feeding into the director of animation. Um, I absolutely have to credit him here, and this is where you're going to have to edit because I'm going to look up his name because <laughs> I can't remember it. <laughs> Hang on, let's um, see if I've got it on, on my DMAD page. Um, no, they... they shamefully don't credit an animation director there well not not in the page i've got anyway doesn't say what year it is does it it's 2003 or dnad 2003 so it may have been made in 2002 um, for some reason I seem to be missing some Frank ones. It's not when you want to be, you want to lose, is it? <laughs> I've actually completely forgotten that ad. It's one of my favorites. Yeah, 
I think that's the that's the problem with so many great ones. You kind of oh, there was that one too. We haven't talked about the uh, Play Doh one, or maybe that was later anyway. But uh, yeah, that was a bit later. Um... I've got. I'm in the NSPCC job file, but I can't see a call sheet. Let's see if I can. Uh, it got it got in for animation, so I'm trying to see who. It's, it's still. Pretty sure it was Russell. Right. I'll see if I can find him and, and make sure he's mentioned. Um, well, so, so that was obviously a huge ad as well. But then Mountain was the following year, which was another Kangon Prix. And, and another ad that's still mentioned now is, oh, yeah, yeah, PlayStation Mountain. Oh, you know, when you start to think of a perfectly made, enormous ad with a great budget for a great client. Um, and I remember hearing from Tony McTeer that I think he had to go around to a lot of the different... Uh, European PlayStation clients to get them to sort of, if not pull their budget together, then to sort of approve it collectively, even though I think you mentioned David Patton again. Um, yeah, yeah. So where, where was that shot? That was shot in Rio in Brazil. And again, it was, um, as I remember, the script originally was, you see this mass of wriggling people like a upturned cup of maggots and as you get close it's in a desert and as you get closer and closer you realize it's the biggest mountain of people you've ever seen and everyone's squirming to get to the top that's i think was the script yeah the idea was all there frank wanted to frank's concern was it didn't have any scale when you had it in a desert right. and that he wanted to set it in a city so that you've got scale of the building and the surroundings and you also had time for the build-up and the people arriving and going um so that that developed um brazil was chosen because we felt we could get quite a bit of scale for our money the exchange rate was such at the time um the cast was obviously going to be huge for this and a lot of stunt man days um and, and brazil was affordable and that's and the climate um we wanted it to be at least warm and pleasant because it was going to be outdoor with people clambering around and you 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 didn't want it to be somewhere where rain and weather was going to be an issue yeah so so we elected for rio yeah well what's interesting i think it happens in all of frank's ads is there's always a moment or, or more than one moment where you know, it, it doesn't have to be there, but because it's there, it makes it so much better. And, and for instance, when all, all these people fall through the window um, halfway up the building, um, it's kind of like, I, I would think, oh, that definitely wasn't in the script, but someone somewhere, presumably Frank, said, we need to have a shot where, you know, either it's been not punctured, but the whole thing isn't just one tone. We're going to take a little break out of it, and maybe it's a, a yeah. little funny moment. Um, so... Um, was that something that, he, that deliberately he felt like we can't just have people climb a wall we need a little bit of 
you know, light and shade here. That's right. And that's, you know, I mentioned before that I, I thought Frank was often one of the funniest directors out there. And there are lots of little moments. It's, I suppose it's probably, it's probably often more wry observational humour. Mm. But to me, it was definitely that. And um, yeah, the window collapsing, I think it humanises it as yeah. well, because it brings it back to a, although you've got a mass of tens of thousands of people, that's still made up of lots of individual people and moments and and i think scenes like that remind you of that absolutely and and i think this was a year or two after lord of the rings happened so that that program massive where you could suddenly that's right yeah lots of people is that what enabled it to to even be feasible completely and i remember them talking about that very software massive and that they'd they could get hold of it it was new and it was allowing us to do things with crowds that hadn't been possible before um, so, so that so that was great. There was there was an enormous mixture of different effects and techniques in in um, mountain. Right. Um, yeah. And another. another but I remember at the pre-prod, at the client David Patton saying, he said, "What, what I'm, I'm really hoping for is that we have a huge scale in this commercial. Can you guarantee me that we're going to have a huge scale?" And I remember Frank saying. Oh, he said, blimey, that's, he said, that's a tough one because what I think of a scale and what you think of a scale might be very different things, he said. But he said, it's my intention that it has a huge scale. <laughs> that, that's what I'm hoping for. And I thought that was the sort of conversation you could only have between two people who, by this stage, really trust each other. Yeah. And that was, uh, that was great. Yeah, and it sort of begat many other different ads where lots and lots of people were either on someone's back or they turned into a big ball of people or something. And it was like, it almost opened the floodgates for, oh, well, Mountain was good. There were a lot of um, pretenders afterwards that didn't quite get to, they weren't they weren't done by Frank, so they weren't quite as good. <laughs> um, the other one I, I wanted to mention was uh, Stella the Sacrifice. Um, I've been watching a lot of very old movies recently and it's kind of crazy that a sort of Boonwell-esque surrealist art house movie got made as a stellar ad. Um, yeah. Was that what kind of piqued Frank's interest rather than it being another epic? It was like, no, let's let's go on Chien de Loup for this. I seem to remember there were two around at the time. There was Stellar Priests, which Vince had written, with ice skating priests, yes. which felt like it would be really strong. Yeah. And Vince was talking to Jonathan on that. And there was this much more experimental. And um, George Prest and, again, Johnny apologies. Levin. That's right. Um, and Frank was interested in doing both. And, of course, we were desperately trying to financially manipulate it that we did both, <laughs> and um, but we, 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 I wasn't successful in that, and Jonathan did um, ice skating priests, and, but, we, but it came to the point, Frank said, you know, in the end, he said, I'd still like, even if I don't get priests, he said, I'd still like to do this one. Um, I think it'd just be fascinating. It's so out there. So, and it, and it was. Yeah, and I think, I think that's... Uh... It's a really unusual ad to to have done. There was one Jonathan did the Guinness ad, Dream Club. Uh, I saw yesterday for some. I was looking at it for for another reason. I mean, it's very unusual. You get a sort of art house commercial, and those two are the only real examples that that kind of spring to mind for me. 
Um, yeah. Not yeah. that they weren't good commercials, but they were just very unusual. Yeah. Um, and then I guess Play-Doh was one I wanted to mention, because you're following up, um, I guess there's been paint and balls for Sony at this point. Um, did, does, did Frank feel anything like, I don't want to make the next Sony ad because, you know, we've already had these two great big ones, all I'm doing is following the campaign. Or was he like, oh, great, let's have a shitload of Play-Doh in New York? And I think it's, um, it, it's a, again, it's a tough act to follow, and this was... I think following Jonathan again was it? Oh, He'd yeah. done one of the. He did the paint one. And then there was the balls. That's right. Um, but it, but he 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 had great respect for Juan Cabral and wanted to work with him, and they they got on quite well. And um, so they, you know you knew it was going to be a long collaborative process, and uh, he was he was very happy to to do that. And uh, was again the mixture of animation and uh, live action was that with claymation was it a very long process or was it you know doable and you just knew what you're getting into it it is a long very long process and um i'm trying to trying to remember now and and the producer on this one was rupert smythe again who did a lot of jobs with frank particularly in sort of the last five years of frank and this was a fiendishly complicated one in the streets of new york um they had lots of models made looking like clay of the different colored rabbits in i think there was a cycle of six so each rabbit was in one of six positions to sort of complete their leap then there were different colors but very quickly the permutations you got into of how many moves you had to make of all these different rabbits was very complicated i can imagine yeah um and so very slow to shoot yeah so, so it feels like what we've talked about over the last hour is a sort of, in my mind, golden age. And I try not to think I'm looking at everything through rose-tinted spectacles. And, um, you know, if things felt like, the, I think you mentioned last time that everyone thinks 10 years earlier is a golden age. But um, yeah, it still yeah. doesn't feel like, it felt like, you know, every year there were a lot of really good ads, many of which came from you guys. Um, and it was always a kind of, you know, uh, very crowd pleasing, very admirable. Oh my God, look what they've done now. And to me, it doesn't feel like that's kind of the situation we're in at the moment. And that's not just to say, oh, everything's awful. Let's all cry about it. But I wondered if you have any insight from someone running the preeminent production company of a certain time, what, what if anything changed um, as far as you were able to see? I, th I, think, I think one thing which is always there is the financial pressures and the financial pressures often lead to sometimes the wrong decision being made so chris chris summed up really well our ethos we, we often talked about should we have a, a a company motto and um the first one we ever came up with is we make ads which we're not embarrassed by but <laughs> that 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 sounded far too arrogant and um so we never we never publicly talked about that, but I always used to like that in the back of my head. Um, you, won't, you know, basically, want to stay doing the good stuff. And then, as a company, I think we we always we always did enough work to be able to say no to anything, but we never looked to shoot as much as we possibly could. Um, so we were always quite um, cautious, if you like, about what we shot. But um, Chris described 
once he said you know sometimes and this of course him having had an agency and being creative director he said it's like we we protect the ads from the people who wrote them by which he doesn't always mean the creative team who wrote it you know sometimes it's the client who's bought it so an ad would be sent to us you'd see there would be this great idea the process would start the shoot would go and then the client would get these financial pressures for other things and would start trying to dilute the idea and sometimes you know that was coming from the agency as well and we were quite combative i think so we were we were we sort of were like quite fierce guardians of the script which had been written by the people we were then fighting with and we felt we were often trying to protect it protect their baby which was a curious situation mm. but that, that's how we often saw it yeah it's a really interesting way of looking at it. and i know chris battled very hard to have julie andrew's version of favorite things for skoda cake for yeah. example yeah and when i'd hear those stories i'd go wow it is amazing that the director i know obviously you know chris wants it to be as good as it can be but it's it's funny that you don't just get a good director, you get a really good advocate for the ad that this ad could be um, as well. And if you've got someone like Chris in your corner going, no, no, you must pay for Julie Andrews' version of Favourite Things, otherwise this is not going to be as good as it can be. That's an incredible asset to have. Yeah, I think that's right. And in that instance, I think um, the, the the agency were, Fallon were, I think they were on board with that. The issue was trying to get Julie Andrews to agree, but... Oh, right. In a way, through Chris's perseverance and assistance, that emboldens everybody else to stick with it and stick with it. And um, and eventually she said yes, which was great. Cool. Well, I mean, we, we've, we've gone through uh, the the what I wanted to learn about the Genesis and the golden, golden years of how gorgeous it was. I don't know if there's anything now that we're here chatting, you either want to talk about, you know, Frank obviously passing away much earlier than any of us would have wanted or liked and... and you know your perspective on that or how things are at the moment in in the in the ad world or what you're up to um yeah i mean i'm not involved in the ad world anymore and i, and I haven't been since about 2013 when i left so i'm 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 not in a position to, to comment on what's going on because in truth i, I don't know I've, I've really not been involved i'm in, live in a very different world now but um i've got nothing but fond memories of the time and actually it's been fascinating for me talking to you about this because it's it's rekindled so many of the memories and um and yeah it's it's amazing looking back on it all chris is still going gorgeous is still there yeah. they, they they now have this amazing um boat uh which is moored on the thames limehouse basin i think which which sounds fantastic i'm i'm very envious of that um i've never seen it but i've, I've seen pictures of it so um i trust they're all well is that the office now the boat yeah wow. that's that's now now the office yeah amazing um well and yeah from my perspective obviously my wife worked for you for three maybe three and yeah, and a half years. yeah gabby was there which was fantastic and i was during felt, the golden days <laughs> yeah exactly so <laughs> I'd, I'd i'd always hear really fascinating stories from my from wherever i happened to be at that time but it always sounded amazing and, and it's been an incredible opportunity to speak to you about it from what you know a position of someone who's absolutely right in the middle of it all so huge thanks for all those insights and um i look forward to sharing them with everyone else but that's been it's been fantastic speaking to you paul great and what, and what about um 
What about you, Ben? What are you up to? I, I see you've done quite a lot of these, which are they're, they're great things, actually. Yeah, I, I found it to be a, a fantastic opportunity to ring up someone I want to speak to or haven't spoken to for a while. Or, you know, when when I when I started doing it, Paul Silverman said, do you want to speak to Danny? And I was like, oh, yeah, because I, I made an ad with Danny nearly 20 years ago. And it was great to ask him what the plot of Don't You Forget About Me, the video is all about and things like that. And then my my boss over here said, do you want to speak to Mark Romanek? And I was like, yes, I do. That would be amazing. And then also, there's been two instances, both of Paul Silvan and Jeff LeBay, who have both passed away um, since I've Jeff? Jeff did, Jeff did uh, die, uh, oh, when no. is it now, four, maybe four years ago? Um, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, it was it was very sad, very sudden, because, you know, Gabby was very close to him as well. In fact, we both yeah, were. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a shame, but I felt like being able to have both of them, their voices on record, um, going through their careers has been kind of a privilege to be able to leave that out for some people to yeah you know, yeah no, that's great um in their own words so that's been great yeah and what i'm doing otherwise is generally freelancing in lots of interesting uh, situations over here la la is not so much an advertising city as sort of you end up working on the client with the clients um in a creative capacity which is quite interesting i'm working with ibm um on something at the moment and then right. as as uh, I, I don't know if you saw what gabby sent last time but our uh, climate crisis initiative of gigantic fucking solutions um we're currently in a very interesting process with mnc Saatchi where we're attempting to have human beings declared an endangered species um because they actually fit the criteria for that so to have their habitats Excellent. protected and things like that so we have washington lobbyists and education people and scientists and we've created this very large network i say we gabby's done at least 80 percent of all that and um, it's it's I think it's really the only thing to get going on now because if we don't sort out the climate, everything else is going to be. Yeah, quite agree, quite agree. And I did I saw the website and looked through it and I thought it was amazing. Um, am I able to show that to a, to a few colleagues of mine who do our environmental stuff on a much smaller scale? Is is that all right? And it's, it's, oh yeah, it's open. The, the only reason we we password it is because it tends to it requires an, a, an additional conversation generally. If you just left that for people and said go for it, yeah, I think there's yeah. a lot of questions to ask. And so either you know we'd be happy to go through it in more detail with you if you want to, but you're very welcome to pass it on to anyone and and we we, we talk to anyone. So if you if you show it to someone and they want to talk to us, we will always make half an hour or an hour to explain kind right. of the setup because it's it's an unusual structure. Um, in that we don't have any money, but we're trying to make the biggest things in the world happen. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. But often that. you need you need the catalyst to make it happen, and you, you're being that, which is which is great because it's what it needs. Yeah, and things like getting human beings declared in endangered species doesn't necessarily require money. And like I said, Paul, Paul Silvan's ideas don't require money either. And in fact, they could be beneficial for businesses. So we're looking at those things. Another but what it requires is the great idea, and that's a great idea to yeah. declare humans as an endangered species because suddenly everyone looks at it completely differently. Yeah, ex exactly. So, you know, if, if we can generate more of those, and I think if we get that one out, it will give us the impetus to have other people kind of join us and, and keep going as well. Maybe there'll be a financial element to it in the future. But we'll, we'll see. We'll see. But, um, yeah, thank, thanks so much for sparing the time. Um, I'll, I'll see what I can knit together in terms of um, how many episodes it ends up being on my site because WordPress is a bit weird, but it'll be one big thing on SoundCloud, so you'll be able to listen to it all on there. But um, yeah, it's been great. Lovely. And you, I've just remembered that you mentioned something at the end last time, Ben, about pictures or oh, other yeah. stuff for a blog, which I wasn't quite sure what you wanted. 
is it useful for you to have other stuff? Have you got examples of thing you mean? Or well, um, Dave Dye, when he does a podcast, um, I don't know if you've seen his site. I can send it to you, but he's a massive completist in terms of he'll find he'll interview someone like Mark Reddy and find the first ad he ever did in 1982 or something. And I don't do that, but I, I mean, you know, you, you've got a kind of choice. I can find most of the ads here and there online, but if there's anything that you think is interesting um, okay. that you want me to put up, including a picture of yourself, um, I, I, I'll put up whatever you like or not put up whatever you don't like. Um, but well, here, here's the thing with Gorgeous. Um, at all stages, I was always at pain. My view was, the company was about the work we did and that work came from the directors who were at the company so if a journalist ever phoned up to ask me something i'd always say i don't want you to quote me because i've no interest in seeing my name in print i'm happy to give you an opinion but it can't be um, allocated to me you can allocate to gorgeous you can talk about the directors and the work but i don't want me mentioned and i, I always had that view because I didn't want it to be about me. Some some producers where the company is their company and it's the cult of them as an individual person, it has to be about them. That's totally different. And I get that. I just never wanted it to be about me. I wanted it to be about either the directors or the work. So um, we always kept it that way. So a picture was a rare thing. <laughs> well, I don't, yeah, I don't have to put your picture. And I can just link to Gorgeous' site because Frank's archive is on there. And uh, so there'll be a lot okay, of things great. there. Um, but yeah, if there was anything else you, you wanted to put up, um, I'm very happy to do that. But otherwise, I think what's been fascinating about this conversation is that obviously your career has been massively linked to Frank's, who you know none of us can speak to anymore. Um, yeah. But, you know, I've, I've really found it also fascinating to go through the production process and your career as it goes from where you started, from architecture, um, and, and possibly going to a completely different career, to succeeding massively in advertising. And I think um, advertising is one of those jobs where that's not only been possible, but it's been quite a, a regular thing. But it's been, I think your story is is the kind of thing I like to put across in my in my podcast so people can see that there's, there are all sorts of different paths to success. Yeah, yeah, lovely. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. Well, um, yeah, no, I'll, it's been I'll, good talking to you, Ben, anyway. Yeah, you too. And I'll, I'll put it together and send you the links and bits and pieces. And, um, yeah, we if, if there is anything to do with the climate situation, please feel free to just drop us an email and we'll, um, you know, have, have a chat with anyone or help with whatever needs to be done. Great. Okay. okay. All the best, then. Yeah, thanks, Paul. See Bye. you. Bye. Podcast to watch Christmas.